This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Rod Tanchenko about his new book, First Patients, The Incredible True Stories of Pioneer Patients, published by First Hawk Publishing, LLC, in 2022. Rod Tanchenko is a physician and a fellow in the American College of Physicians. He was trained in internal medicine and has three decades of experience as a primary care physician, a hospitalist, a research physician, and a medical director for large healthcare organizations. His writing focuses on medically-themed narrative nonfiction. Rod, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Rachel. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. And to begin, would you tell us something about yourself Uh, your background, because it's obviously related to your topic, and why you decided to write this book. Sure. Well, you've heard my uh, background there, pretty much as my uh, career. So 30 years in in medicine, uh, in internal medicine, uh, as an internist, obviously. And um, uh, I pretty much follow the typical path of uh, internal internist uh, 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 career, you know, going to uh, group practice and then solo practice. And then along the way, I got involved in clinical trial work as a principal investigator and some other roles. And now I'm also in that role in the clinical invest, uh, in the uh, clinical trial world uh, as a uh, medical monitor. So I kind of look over some of these early phase studies uh, for safety and data integrity and all that. Uh, and I find that uh, very interesting work. And along the way, I've and always, since I was young, I've always enjoyed writing. So, and I enjoyed looking for stories uh, and being a physician and interested in science, then it just came naturally to look for certain stories that are interesting to me. And uh, that's how this book kind of started. Uh, it started with one of the stories and uh, I thought it was worth looking into a little bit more deeply and then eventually said, yeah, maybe write about it. Um, and then that led to other stories. And before you know it, uh, I had uh, what I thought was enough to maybe put together in a book. <clears throat> and that's how the uh, first patients uh, came about uh, uh, a few years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> That's fascinating. So when you started, did you have the intention to write the book or were you writing individual stories first? And then you said, aha, this could be a book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, it was um, because I've been sort of 
submitting articles here and there, you know, to uh, magazines and, uh, you know, online uh, posts and so forth. Uh, so I think initially it was, I'll, I'll write this individual stories and, and see how it goes. Um, and uh, eventually I, I, I thought that I think there's enough here and there's actually more, but uh, uh, these are the ones that I think uh, – maybe uh, good to put together and at some point said eh, let, uh, let's go for it and, you know it's kind of a big project as you know uh and it did take a while uh a few years to go through it you know because we still have our day job <laughs> um, and there's a lot of research that's involved in it uh, but it was a uh, it, it was a fun process i think for me and uh i'm glad i did it eventually and i, I and i'm even more glad that i got it done <laughs> <laughs> kind of a kind well, of big challenge for me to get it done. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations for that. It's yeah. always a, a, a something celebratory when you finish a book. But <laughs> I, I have to say, I'm always amazed by doctors who are also authors, and I think, how do you possibly have the time and energy to do both? <laughs> well, it's first of all, you really have to like doing it i guess you know uh in a way it's a, a hobby right the writing uh and when you like it enough you you'll find a way you find it sometime so you might need to in my case you get up early uh you write at you know 5 a.m you know, for an hour or two before your real work begins or your day work begins uh or you do the research during that time or late at night, so it, it's just a matter of really uh, loving the process and, and 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 really enjoying the writing part of it and the research part of it. And then when you like it enough, you you find a way to do it. And it didn't. It, it took a while. It took a number of years to do that. Uh, but then again, if you're enjoying it, then you don't really mind, right? Uh, that it took so so much time uh, to complete it. Uh, because in a way, it, it, it's something that's uh, enjoyable to do. So, yeah, that's right. And I guess different than what you are doing in your day job, as you say. <laughs> right, right. Which yeah. is not, you know, not to say that it's not interesting. Yeah, uh, what I'm it, it, that is just a different, you know, type of interesting uh, work. So, uh, yeah. So that's where. Yeah. I mean. mm. Yeah. Very good. So. One thing I wonder about, many of the protagonists in this book are long dead, and you mentioned doing the research at 5 a.m. and such. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, how do you go about conducting your research with the aim, as it were, of bringing these characters back to life for the reader? Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's really one of the fun parts of this whole process for me, anyway. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a treasure hunt, isn't it? Right? So, and you, I, I'm trying to discover... Uh, facts or uh, information that you know maybe hasn't been uncovered before or has been long forgotten information. So for me, that uh, that search is really a, a lot of the fun in the process in there. So now in the medical field, fortunately, uh, some of these uh, sources we have medical journals that go back hundreds of years. So fortunately, some of these uh, characters. If they were doctors or they're scientists in the 18th century or, or you know, even earlier, uh, they may have written something, you know, and that came out in some obscure journal during their time. 
and it may be existing in some archive somewhere. So searching for those is really, uh, you know, kind of an adventure, which is kind of enjoyable for me in some strange way, I guess. Um, So some of these stories uh, do go back a few hundred years and, uh, you know, the... A lot of them, fortunately, have been digitized now. You know, it's just a matter of finding where. Sometimes it's still difficult to find it in online, but if you can find those archives <clears throat> and those obscure journals, sometimes and you find it, and it's like a treasure, and you open it up and you find the words of these people who lived hundreds of years ago, and so it's a great source. You know, great primary sources for that. So th- that was part of it. Um, some of these stories are more contemporary, so they're easier to find uh, because, you know, the journals are more easily available if, if they wrote something about it. Um, some of them are from ancient writings <laughs> or, uh, you know, if you go back to the Hippocratic area, I mean, there's nothing much there except for sometimes secondary sources on, on the uh, translations and so forth. But yeah, it's amazing how far back sometimes you can go with some of these uh, sources. Uh, mm. And then when it's possible, in some of these uh, stories, in a couple of them, the protagonists, you know, the characters, uh, were still alive. Uh, so I was able to track them down and interview them, interview the family, um, and, and, and get uh, really very uh, useful information that that you know that hasn't been uh, revealed before because it's coming from really inside the personal stories within the families and so forth so that was great to to talk to those people and get that information and tell new stories based on that so but it was a great process uh, that, that research uh was really very enjoyable for me that that was the, like i said it's like a treasure hunt and uh it was kind of a challenge to uh, to find those nuggets of information and save them. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a good way to put it—a treasure hunt. And it, it is yeah. really exciting when you pull something out of those dusty old journals. Although I guess, as you say, they're digitized; they're not actually literally dusty, but but they still feel that way, don't they? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when you look at it, and uh, you know, the, you, you actually they digitize the uh, original document and so forth, uh, and the original pictures and photos and. Because you know, I, I, I try to get into the in, in, into the era, right, uh, and get the feel of how it was like, and then I try to get as many resources, audio, video. Some of them are audio recordings, uh, so you listen to these people mm-hmm. talking, uh, and they're very old. Uh, some of them are videos, uh, you know, uh, when it's doing the yellow fever story, which was in the uh, you know 1900s, early 1900s, and. You have stuff uh, from, uh, you know, the movie, cam- not a lot of video, but there's some really old <laughs> videos, you know, Spanish-American war and pictures and all that stuff. Huh? Um, it's very interesting. You try to picture yourself in the setting and uh, try to, you know, try to imagine what it was like for these people who were going through what they were going through and write in that context. So, uh, so that's... Uh, you're trying to have a move, sort of a movie in your mind and trying to live in that uh, in that era for in a way so and i'm thinking if i do that maybe it will come out in the writing right and it, it, it you, you kind of share that experience also with whoever reads the story that was the mm. hope anyway <laughs> 
Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it is. And so did you find yourself calling people for interviews at 5 a.m.? Or <laughs> <laughs> Well, the... Um, the one that I had the most interview was the pacemaker, the implantable pacemaker story. Oh, yeah. That was uh, a great story. Yeah. And that was actually the one that got the whole book started. So I, I saw that little blurb in, a, uh, in an article somewhere while I was uh, doing a review uh, for, uh, you know, medical education kind of thing, uh, credits. <clears throat> And there was a little blurb on that story, almost like a trivial kind of thing, except it wasn't so trivial because, you know, it, it really involved uh, a family and a husband and wife. And so it wasn't trivial for them, right? Uh, but in the context of the pacemaker story, it's sort of, oh, by the way, this is how it started. So that got me started on that uh, on that journey, on this journey of uh, finding it. said, let's, let's dig deeper into this story. I want to know, because when I was reading it, like I said, this is like this is like a movie here. <laughs> so uh, I was able, to, and and the couple, <clears throat> um, they lived in Sweden, and the wife, who was so, really the protagonist, you know, the, uh, the 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 main character in that story, uh, was still alive uh, at that point. Uh, this was several years ago. She's since passed away, unfortunately. But I was able to track her down, and yeah, and you know, there's a um, what's it, eight hour difference between here and Sweden, probably in Europe. So I would, it would be, uh, you know, of course, it would be have to be convenient for them. But we had mm. a few phone calls, and I, I was able to talk to uh, some of the other family members, the children, the son, who is now a pretty prominent uh, doctor himself in the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and the daughter who at one point was a member of parliament over there. Uh, so I was able to interview both of them and one of, and the inventor of the pacemaker, implantable pacemaker, Dr. Elmquist, his son is actually a very prominent uh, inventor himself um, in Sweden. And we were able to correspond, and he gave me some great resources and some of the stuff that his father wrote that's not really commonly known, uh, patents and, you know, and some other uh, sort of inside backstory information. So that, that's really uh, very, um, <clears throat> very useful. And it's really great to know these uh, people for the story. Yeah. Uh, great to find out. And that man really went through a lot. I think that was my favorite story in the book. Mm-hmm. And the most amazing thing to me was that mm-hmm. at the end of his life, I think he was 80 or he was in his 80s mm-hmm. and he had been diagnosed with cancer, which mm-hmm. he was to die of subsequently. But mm-hmm. but they gave him a new pacemaker anyway. Right. You know, even though, um, and he'd had, I don't know how many pacemakers by that time. It was just extraordinary. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it just, um, and his... Um, he did die of uh, skin cancer, nothing cardiac at all. You know, his heart pretty much held up and uh, remained strong for 40 years, you know, after that uh, initial pacemaker. And he kept getting new pacemakers throughout the years. So his story is really a story of evolution of pacemakers in a way. 
because you know a new mm-hmm. one would come out and he would get it. Uh, the, he would new leads would come out and uh, he would get it. Uh, sometimes he would refuse to get it because he's kind of a stubborn man. <laughs> also, uh, he, and he was an engineer, so it's he, he, he sort of knew the uh, engineer some of the engineering behind it and the rational, you know. And if he felt that something was not quite right let's say with the batteries, let's say, and he wasn't quite convinced that the lithium battery would be better than what he had, which is an old, you know, battery. So he would refuse and that would be frustrating also for his doctors. But, you know, but they would reason with him and uh, uh, explain and they would talk on technical terms and eventually he might agree or not agree. But the bottom line is, yeah, he survived 40 years and eventually died of something else other than what mm-hmm. was initially killing him when he first got the first, uh, when he got the very first pacemaker. So, yep. Yeah. Gosh. And what, what a interesting perspective to have on your own yeah. medical technology to, uh, you know, to sort of have an idea of whether the, the engineering is, is, I don't know, something you should feel optimistic that. about or right, not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder too, so you've got a, a number of different stories in there, a, a diverse group. And how did you decide which medical development stories to include? You know, what kind of compelled you to write these particular histories? Well, the first of all, if there's enough of the uh, stories like if I if I'm able to find some of these backstories, obviously if I don't have enough information, then there's not much to write about. Um, so if there's enough of that personal, and I was focused on the personal narratives uh, behind these innovations or these milestones. So if I go through the the research and there's enough uh, information in there, then that's obviously one major criteria that. Uh, it, 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 there's enough in there to write about. Um, and then eventually I would, you know, I, I found these 10 stories. And to me, initially it sound, it, it seemed like it was kind of random, right? Uh, there's just no rhyme or reason to it, uh, aside from me finding it interesting uh, and compelling. Um, but when I reflect on it, you know, I, I kind of look back on it, uh, maybe subconsciously, uh, I was finding some common themes um, in them. And one is that uh, they were relatively obscure. So even in the medical field, I think not a lot of doctors would really know these backstories to some of these events. Uh, And the other thing is that it's sort of another perspective to an otherwise common story. Uh, What I mean is, for example, you have the penicillin story. And you, and you mentioned history of penicillin. Most people would probably remember Alexander Fleming, right? Um, mm-hmm. Who the famous story of him discovering the molds uh, after he left on holiday and came back, and his uh, petri dishes had these molds growing, and uh, and he discovered this uh, organism called you know penicillium, which apparently had something that was killing the the bacteria. Uh, so that was the common story, right? And uh, we learn about that in school and, you know, it's in the textbooks and so forth. <laughs> when you Google penicillin history, that's probably the first thing that would come up. Um, now, for me, the it, it turns out when I look into it, you know, Fleming, 
he did this. Of course, he, he deserved that credit, but he was also a very good uh, self-promoter in a way. So, uh, <laughs> so that story got, uh, you know, bigger and bigger and, you know, up to the point that, uh, that we know as, as we know it now. A little bit less known is what happened 10 years later, which is really most of the bulk of the work of how penicillin came about, it was, was developed. And that was really the extraction of the actual antibiotic, which uh, Fleming was never able to do. He didn't have the technical capability or maybe know-how to, to do that uh, at the time that he discovered it. Uh, so it's a group in Oxford who actually did most of the work. And they came to America during World War II because the resources during that time in the UK were so, stri- were so scarce they couldn't get enough facilities to really do the mass production of this very important antibiotic into America. And a lot of serendipity and uh, chance encounters. And so happened that this woman in a Yale hospital was dying from sepsis. And next to her was a another patient who was influential enough to actually uh, make a lot of important phone calls. The, the doctor, uh, the patient, the woman's doctor, uh, <clears throat> asked him. You know, uh, we know that there's this experimental drug. Uh, could we get it for this patient of mine who's dying of sepsis? And of course, that other patient uh, did make the calls, uh, and through a series of uh, uh, phone calls here and there they were able to uh, procure the only dose of penicillin at the time because it was still experimental. And this woman became penicillin patient number one. And the story, of course, is now that uh, the patient was saved and it was very dramatic. You know, you have these interns injecting this drug every four hours. And by the next day, the fevers were going, went from one, you know, very high fevers to normal you know, and the patient uh, was be- become, becoming more lucid. So in the hospital, it was a big stir, and uh, rarely do you see something as dramatic as that. <clears throat> so, and this was in the context of, uh, you know, the Second World War. Um, and it was really sort of a secret operation. And uh, it uh, eventually led to the mass production of such an important drug, antibiotic, uh, from five grams when that patient, first patient, the first American was treated, to billions of units. And I don't know how many soldiers uh, it saved on D-Day and, 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 and other theaters, right, in, the, in Asia and so forth. So in that context, there was a bigger story uh, than just the discovery 10 years prior to that. Uh, and it involved, uh, you know, this this woman also who was saved by uh, his doctor and who happened to have another patient who was an influential person in getting that first drug over to that hospital. Uh, so stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, and then you know, the first story was about the... Uh, uh, vaccination, right, with the, with the farmer in the UK as well. And that one, I thought, uh, I, I added later on, I think when the f- pandemic first uh, started, 
because for obvious reasons, I think it's being more timely. And I was just uh, curious to know <clears throat> uh, what it was like in that first vaccination years, right? And again, um, in the medical circles probably, and even beyond that, uh, when you look up vaccination, one of the first things that you probably see is the name Edward Jenner, who was the uh, doctor who did those initial experiments and uh, had that famous story about the milkmaids uh, mm-hmm. having a perfect complexion and never being affected by smallpox. So this is a smallpox story. And he came up with the idea of vaccinating uh, with cowpox, which is another virus that uh, infected cows. And that may be something that may be protective because these milkmaids, the people who work with cows and he got, who probably got infected with this other virus, somehow got immune to smallpox. Um, So that's the very common, famous story. But I don't think a lot of people know 20 years before, someone actually tried it, and it wasn't a scientist. It was a farmer who obviously had no scientific background, no medical background, and he was relying purely on folklore uh, because everyone knew in in the farming world back then that... uh, when you got cowpox, a certain infection from, from cows, that somehow conferred a protection immunity from smallpox. So he based it on that sort of heuristic, you know, folklore uh, theory to try to uh, vaccinate his own family <clears throat> with that. So, um, so. And for that, he was uh, he was ostracized. You know, the people people thought he was doing something crazy. How can you experiment on your own family? Mm-hmm. And more importantly, how can you introduce material from a beast, from a cow, into a human being? So in the seven late seventeen hundreds, that was really unthinkable uh, to do that. And even the prominent scientists and doctors at the time would uh, come up with you know, scientific articles with complete with uh, drawings of uh, children with swollen faces and claim that they were being transformed into beasts, into cows because of this process, you know, and then this was during Jenner's uh, time already. So, so you can draw, so stuff, uh, stories like that, uh, we have on the one hand, the famous stories that are sort of hyped up and, uh, you know, you have very good biographers and so forth. And over time, reach sometimes mythical proportions. And then behind that, there are some smaller stories, which is also very relevant and uh, shows also those human narratives and uh, those other stories that are, to me, uh, sometimes a lot more interesting. So uh, so I think there was a theme of that, that, uh, that there's some other stories, that these common stories. Uh, and also um, that, um, <clears throat> uh, and also those stories that show, sort of show what, what, what the prevailing uh, uh, beliefs were or attitudes during the time that they happened. So I think that was also very interesting to me. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's a good point about stories becoming sort of um, uh, calcified isn't the right word, but um, <laughs> just you know, sort of embedded yeah. in the in the consciousness of and and not just in the public, but also of, of science. Um, 
I, I wonder, so of, of these 10 stories, do you have a favorite one or do you have a favorite huh. protagonist that emerged? Wow. Well, that's almost like choosing a favorite child, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I would say the, you know, uh, the first story that I wrote on the pacemaker, and maybe because I had a little bit more of a, uh, I probably spent the most time on that as far as research is concerned, because I was, uh, first of all, it was the first one. And it was also the one that I had an opportunity to talk to almost the whole family that was involved in it. So there's a little bit of a personal uh, aspect to it. And fortunately, I was able to speak with the, like I said, the, the, the woman who was the main character, main mm-hmm. protagonist in that story, Elsmarie Larson. And she was obviously late in her years when I spoke to her uh, a number of times just to get her side of the story. And, um, and she was uh, very, still very, you know, obviously when you're talking to her, quite forceful, um, very determined, uh, even when uh, I was uh, talking to her. And you can sense that uh, she had very strong opinions uh, about certain things. Um, uh, so you can just see the strength of character. And I could understand how uh, she was able to convince and force and coerce, you know, two very prominent doctors uh, huh. to, to go ahead and uh, invent a prototype on an implantable pacemaker uh, way before it was uh, time to do that, you know, or way before they were planning to do anything like that. So so I think that was um, probably if I were to choose, uh, that had a, a little bit of a more of a special place for me. Yeah, that's a more personal connection to it. Right. Yeah, talk about patient patient advocates. She was really a, a good example of that. Yes, <laughs> maybe absolutely. an early example. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, back in sort of more maybe paternalistic times for medicine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, do you think it's important for people to know these histories? I mean, you say you you enjoyed the process and it was personally interesting for you, but uh, but do you think there's an, an importance in other people knowing them? Yeah, I absolutely. I think anyone who's interested in um, these personal narratives or medical drama, in a way, sometimes huh. um, w- would would find this uh, interesting enough. I think. And in our context now, you know, we've had, as human beings, we've had these three years of really a shared experience with the pandemic, with COVID-19, right? And for a lot of us, it's probably one of the most important events that happened in our lives, I think. Uh, A lot of my colleagues is probably going to be one of the defining things in their careers. You know, when when I look at some of the work they're they're doing, and these are my classmates and my friends, <clears throat> and they're doing so much uh, to help their communities and educate and so forth. So it's really a very big <clears throat> defining moment. Excuse me. Um, so for many of us, it's really a very impactful event. And sometimes it's uh, once in a while, it's good to get a sense of contacts and look back and see some of the stories uh during other periods of time, during other pandemics, we've never seen smallpox, we've never seen yellow fever, but during their time, it, it, these things were decimating the world, you know, communities and countries. 
and so forth. And we, we just don't have a sense of that now because we've been so successful in eradicating uh, or controlling some of these diseases. But it's good to have a sense of context <clears throat> on the extent of human inventiveness and resilience, you know, and compassion that mm-hmm. happened before. And, and it's still happening now. Um, and uh, and the effects of, you know, having a, uh, a motivated community that's uh, driving this innovation and, and progress <clears throat> and uh, making us uh, go forward. And it's amazing to me that this just process, you know, it keeps going on, on and on. Um, and I, I've seen it in, in researching these uh, uh, stories from the past, and you see it now um, in what's going on right now. Um, I was uh, reading up on the development of the first COVID vaccine, and it was actually developed by a small company, right? Uh, and and through a series of uh, events that they didn't anticipate and some series of uh, serendipitous events as well, it wasn't the big, uh, you know, like a top five pharma that came up with the first vaccine. It was a more of a smaller company with, you know, maybe a thousand employees and so forth who came up with it. And sort of this experience mirrored some of these experiences that happened before. So that's kind of... Uh, amazing so to to see those parallels um <clears throat> we have now what what is called like citizen scientists um we have this group that are uh, self-experimenting and these are not these are well-informed people you know scientists uh who are coming up with uh vaccines and they're and they're experimenting it on themselves and we have i have a couple of stories in here with, on like self-experimenters as you know right uh, yes <laughs> the, so um and the difference is now of course during let's say the yellow fever doctors the u.s army doctors who were trying to find the source of the yellow fever and they're trying to prove that it was coming from it from the uh, mosquito as a vector. And of course they were, um, they were uh, having volunteers be uh, bitten by mosquitoes, but they also served as uh, their own uh, volunteers. So they decided that if we're gonna do this, have other people subject themselves to this, we're gonna do it to ourselves as well. So they were self-experimenting and one of them got really sick uh, severely and uh, one of them actually died because of it. Um, And you might think that that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore because of uh, so much regulation, right? Uh, As far as clinical trials and go uh, in the present day, but it's still going. We have have these, like I said, this uh, physician, or not physician, but uh, they call it uh, citizen scientists. Now, and um, and they have instead of uh, uh, and they're going through the process of uh, really looking at the science behind it. And since they can't really give it to other people because we have regulation, then they would do it on themselves. But share that information in, in uh, open source documents and white papers and and other people who are uh, inclined technically. To, to follow their footsteps might be able to do so. So, um, so there are some parallels now, you know, they're, they're a lot different regulatory-wise, but uh, still you have that, uh, <clears throat> you have those things that are in common 
from before and now. Uh, the other one, you know, vaccination, Jenner, he, when he uh, tried to publish his experiments, uh, he was actually rejected uh, hmm. <laughs> the first time uh, by the, you know, the prominent journal at the time said, eh, it, there's not enough here. So what did he do? Well, he, he self-published uh, his second experiment on, uh, on a dozen subjects. So, you know, the, the journals won't publish it. They didn't think it was good enough. So hmm. I'll publish it. So he, you know, out of his own uh, expense, he did that. And, you know, and the rest is history. Um, nowadays, we have people doing what I, you know, I just mentioned, uh, uh, making the information available as an open source document, you know, on the internet and so forth. So because they wanted to bypass or they want to bypass all these regulatory requirements with, you know, and, and all these regulations and so forth on uh, clinical trials and, uh, and so forth, you know, they're, they're a good thing overall because we've come a long way as far as ensuring uh, patient safety and patient welfare and protecting human subjects from uh, uh, experimentation and so forth. So these are very good uh, uh, things to have to protect human subjects. Um, so you have that kind of a important balance that you have to strike between that and being knowledgeable and so forth. And as you know, the, we have, it's a lot of information, too much information sometimes is, uh, well, not sometimes, but oftentimes <laughs> very confusing and leads to other, uh, other consequences which are not so good. So. Yeah, I think it is certainly confusing for the public, but yes. I, I think too, I just read an article um, calling for a change in the way scientific research is published. And it wasn't actually going after peer review, but it was simply um, that idea of publication bias. And so mm -hmm. a lot of stuff isn't getting published and saying how sort of um, it behind, well, at this point, it seems antiquated to have physical journals that things have to be published in and mm -hmm. selected for when it would be easy for the researchers to set up their own web page mm -hmm. and publish their research and include all the data that you didn't used to have mm -hmm. access to. So um, right. that, that's a lot of things you can do now that you you didn't used to in that, you know, when you said that uh, Jenner self-published mm -hmm. and I thought, actually, you know, self-publishing is not a new thing either, but yeah. it's so much easier for people now to do it and disseminate it in a way that is, um, it can, it can offer a lot of information that right. isn't just closed off to people who have uh, institutional subscriptions or a lot of money. Right. And uh, who knows, uh, maybe that's the direction eventually that will, uh, that will be following, you know, have this open source and all this uh, transparency with the, with the, uh, with the basic data, with the, with the, uh, uh, with the raw data uh, that's in there. And of course, in, you know, on the other hand, it does take uh, some training, some expertise to, to interpret uh, raw data. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, factors that go into that argument mm. yeah yeah but i suppose but other scientists would then have access to that oh, raw yes. data yes definitely um, yep so mm -hmm. 
would be more transparent in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you answered actually my next question, which I was going to ask if, you know, having been involved in medical research, if you saw any common elements um, between medical innovation today and, and some of the histories that you, you tell. And um, I think you've covered that. I, I was thinking too about subjects in medical research mm-hmm. now. So um, along with the citizen scientists or people who experiment mm-hmm. on themselves, there's a, an awful lot of people who offer themselves up often hoping for a cure for themselves, but mm-hmm. sometimes people who have nothing wrong with them and they're mm-hmm. volunteering for different reasons. Right. Um, yeah. Just another aspect of individuals who are caught up in in medical research. Right. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There's like two, uh, yeah, you could look at it from two points of view. One is a therapeutic and one is a non-therapeutic uh, research. Um, so the early therapeutic, obviously, if someone has uh, cancer and you want to find a, uh, a therapy treatment for that. Uh, so you have often, and, and in some of the stories in the book, um, from the patient point of view, you often have uh, an element of desperation, right? Um, that there's really no other choices, uh, very limited choices on what to do, what treatment to offer, and so forth. Um, and so you're left to, to to rely on whatever you know this innovating physician or scientist is offering. Uh, because you're kind of desperate. Um, you, you don't know what else to do. So an attribute of these patients would be simply a strong desire to survive or a strong desire to save a loved one. Um, and um, from the from the doctor's uh, point of view, earlier also you mentioned about something about uh, uh, something a patriarch- patriarchal sort of attitude, right? Mm. Towards it. And that's actually one of the themes as well, um, because especially in the earlier stories from, you know, more than a hundred years ago, it really is almost exclusively, you know, patriarchal kind of attitude that, you know, you have this Hippocratic oath, your doctor will do the best for you. You just have to trust completely hundred percent that, that that's the intention is good and they'll find the best possible treatment or options for you. Right. Um, now it always didn't always turn out to be that way. You know, there are some instances in history of uh, nefarious <laughs> events mm-hmm. happening, um, as we know. Um, but as you go forward, and some of these stories now, uh, the more uh, recent ones, you sort of see the evolution as well of how patients begin to become more of a partners uh, in this decision-making. Um, and you, ha- you see the early uses of informed consent, for example, like in the yellow fever story mm-hmm. in the 1900, they actually st- started to use uh, a document to inform their volunteers of the risk because it wasn't therapeutic. You know, you're going you're gonna to be bitten by mosquitoes that has yellow fever in it that's not really a therapeutic. You're actually inducing a possible uh, right, yeah. uh, infection in them. Uh, in current times, um, 
we have early phase studies, you know, like phase one studies, wherein we're using uh, or we're asking healthy volunteers for these studies. So they don't have the disease of what we're trying to treat, but we're trying to test these new compounds for uh, tolerability and safety. So, and you're looking for stuff like what we call pharmacokinetics, which means, you know, what, what, how high a dose uh, or how high a level does it go up in the bloodstream when you give this medication or this investigational drug to this patient? You're trying to test just to get that baseline levels uh, to go forward to the to the later phase studies, which are become more of the therapeutic phases. So, um, so yeah, so you have this therapeutic uh, aspect to it, and then non-therapeutic, you know, you healthy volunteers who are. Uh, who must know what they're getting into, obviously. And the, 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 a lot of very, right now, it's very rigorous, obviously, with the informed consent. You have several pages of that, and there's a lot of rules and that are, that are uh, being implemented uh, compared to, you know, less than 100 years ago when it didn't exist. And it was really based on mainly trust, really, right, uh, on that. Um, but going back again to the other, to the main question that you had about the, uh, uh, the attributes and so forth. Uh, f- for the doctors <clears throat> who are working on this, one thing that I noticed uh, is that th- they were obviously very curious to answer a question um, that that they found to be very important. Uh, and it was sort of a burning question that they just had to answer. And in a lot of the cases, they, they didn't set out on, on their journey, uh, on their quest to save the world or to invent something that's so revolutionary that it will, you know, affect all of humanity and save humanity. Um, <clears throat> they were just act- really <clears throat> trying to answer a question. Like in the penicillin story, for example, Dr. Flory, who was their main uh, doctor, was uh, trying to isolate the antibiotic and mass produce it. He said, I didn't set out to save humanity, you know. We just wanted to know if this uh, substance had antibacterial properties. That was the only, it was just a purely scientific question. <laughs> but it grew from there because uh, obviously they found that it was and it was less toxic than other stuff. And it was World War II and there was a sense of urgency to mass produce it. So <clears throat> it kind of grew from there. But the initial intention was just to answer a scientific question. Uh you have the ulcer story, you know, the peptic ulcer story, wherein mm-hmm. uh, for, for hundreds of years, we blamed it on acid. And of course, acid still plays an important role in development of uh, peptic ulcers. In the medical world, we uh, there was a dictum at one point when I was a medical student, you know, no acid, no ulcer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then these two Australian doctors came in and said, we think it's bacteria that's causing it mainly, you know, most of these uh, peptic ulcers. And they were scoffed at and they were sort of, no one took them seriously, especially in the GI world. Um, but it started out with this uh, a medical resident who just wanted to have a project to work on during his residency because he was required to do so. And uh, his superior told him, go to that pathologist who thinks that bacteria causes ulcers, you know, maybe <laughs> uh, work on that. <clears throat> So, and he did, and they did, they collaborated, and they didn't think 
that it would really amount to much, and and it did, and they they found that uh, it did cause majority of duodenal ulcers, and it was revolutionary in a way that because before that, you know, someone had ulcers, it's psychological, right? It's stress, uh, it's too much thinking, not enough sleep, so they would send people to psychiatrists instead of uh, treating it. Um, and that was very frustrating for these doctors. Some some patients underwent un, unnecessary surgery, you know, gastrectomy, mm-hmm. take out the stomach to treat an ulcer that now we treat with two weeks of antibiotics and eradicate it completely, and there's a complete cure. Uh, and and before that, you know, you had uh, this antihistamine or the uh, an, uh, medication to control the acid mm-hmm. that can cure it. But uh, and pe- people would need to be on that medication for life because it doesn't really cure the bacteria; it just controls the acidity. And guess what? It turned out to be a billion—the first billion-dollar blockbuster drug uh, in the early '80s. So that changed, you know. And you find this bacteria, and it's something treatable, and you treat it with a short course of antibiotics, and gone. So. But they didn't start out that way. They didn't start out to do something revolutionary that way. It was just a project that they wanted to work with. And, and the last one, you know, like a pacemaker story, the, the inventor, Dr. Elmquist, uh, he said, yeah, you know, I'll make this prototype. I mean, it's just something that we do. I mean, it, it's a... Uh, it's a service we usually provide to the hospital, you know, to in, to create some of these devices. It will never come out amount to anything. Uh, that was his attitude. Uh, even when he saved that, uh, they were able to save uh, that patient. His son asked him, uh, you know, Dad, do you think this pacemaker uh, is going to be something big? You know, because we're getting calls from from uh, journalists from all over the world and patients and so forth. They think it's going to be big. And, and the inventor said, nah, you know, it will die down. It's something that we just do for the for the hospital. It's a one-time thing and nothing will come out of it. And of course, you know, that's not true. It became a, now peacemakers are sort of, uh, we don't even think twice about it, right? It's so common now. Um, yeah, so stuff like that, that uh, these people don't necessarily go out and try to save the world. Uh, they just have some curiosity and a question that they want to answer. And I think that's an important point as well in uh, in in developing these innovations. Yeah, I thank goodness for human curiosity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the title of the book is First Patients, mm-hmm. uh, but it seems to me and you as a doctor would appreciate this, uh, that it could also be titled First Doctors because for every pioneering patient, there's at least one exceptionally persistent doctor who was Mm -hmm. there pushing things along, even if it was just out of their curiosity. Right. Uh, What what would you say about the relationship between these patients, these first patients and their doctors? Right. Um, Well, I think I kind of touched a little bit on that, you know, with the traditional role of the patient Especially in the in the older stories, right in the uh, 18th century and so forth, 19th century, uh, there was really no consent. <laughs> um, if someone was sick, then the doctor would just go ahead and try and treat the patient without explaining uh, what the treatment was or why and and so forth. Uh, someone was bleeding, then you would just try to transfuse the patient. Um, even though 
maybe it wasn't really known what the effects of that would be. Um, and like I said, it's a very strong assumption of trust uh, in, in the doctors back then. And then there was an evolution with a greater role of the patient in the decision-making, you know, and maybe that began maybe in the early 1900s when the physicians would start to ask or permission or at least inform their, their sub, the, uh, you know, experimental subjects or the patients on, on what's going on, you know, or what the possible risks are of uh, getting this treatment uh, or not getting this treatment. Uh, and when you go forward um, in the pacemaker story, for example, you know, like I said, the, the patient was saved, happened to be an engineer, and they actually talked about the inventor and him. They were both engineers, so they actually talked about the uh, technical side of the pacemaker. So that was very well informed, I, guess, I think. Uh, and that was really an example of a partnership between patient and doctor. Although that's kind of unusual because you know they both had uh, some technical expertise. But um, in general, even without the technical expertise, um, there, there's that push or that trend uh, towards having more of a partnership, more of a informed uh, patient rather than just. Uh, the one-sided decision making on the on the physician as far as uh, treatments and uh, you know possible options are for the patient. Mm. Yeah. Hey, that's interesting because that's certainly the way um, the, the trend has gone now. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So Rod, we've taken up a lot of your time today, um, but I wanted to ask you one last question because you mentioned uh, before we began that you had a, a sort of hopeful project in the future. What what's what is your hopeful project? Well, it it still um, <clears throat> relates to medicine, obviously, because that's you write what you know, right? <laughs> um, I am also Filipino American. So I thought it'd be nice to write something about my country. Um, and there is a story in, uh, again, in the early 1900s, in the, during the early American colonial rule in the Philippines that involved human experimentation on prisoners. So, mm. And prisoners nowadays... Doing experiments and that—that's—that's that's called a protected or uh, you know a population um, a special interest. Uh, but back then, <clears throat> they were actually a very common and easy and cheap source of human experimentation, and things went pretty badly during that one. Uh, and I thought that would be an interesting thing to write about. So, very early, but that's uh, my hopeful project for the future. Wow, that sounds really worth doing. So yeah. come back yeah. <laughs> and let's talk about it when you get it done because I'd really like to know more about it. Absolutely, yeah. It'll be my yeah. pleasure. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, once again, everyone, the book is First Patients, The Incredible True Stories of Pioneer Patients. Uh, it is out now with First Hawk Publishing. And Rod, thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you very much, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed our talk.